maybe since the 80s, our diets in the Western countries have shifted toward a dramatic increase in the consumption of uh, ultra-processed foods. Today, they contribute to about 25 to 60% of total uh, daily energy intake. That's Mathilde Touvier, who's studying the health effects of ultra-processed foods in France. More on what they are and on Mathilde's research in a little bit. But firstly, welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ. This is a special episode which is part of our focus on food and nutrition. In the last of these, we looked at the difficulty of examining the effect of our diet on our health. Why the methodology used has inherent uncertainty, and why, in the past, the oversimplification of that research led to grandiose claims that are now taking time to unpick. At our recent food conference, Food for Thought, hosted in Zurich by Swiss Re, we brought together researchers in many fields of nutrition science. We asked people with competing ideas to write articles to elucidate where there was agreement and where there's still contention. All of those talks are available on our website at bmj.com slash food hyphen for hyphen thought, which I've linked to also in the podcast text. As you might expect, there was a lot of disagreement at that conference, but there was one thing that a lot of people had in common. The general idea that the quality of food matters. The general agreement was quality is as, if not more important than, quantity. If I take us back to the first episode of this food series, remember what Dariush Mozaferian, Dean of the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts University said. We've been focusing for 30 years on trying to reduce obesity by telling people to eat less. And I don't think we need to do that. I think that's the wrong approach. We need to tell people to eat better and, in fact, eat more of healthy foods. If people eat more healthy foods, obesity will go down. And so I think it's about quality, not quantity. And that's going to be a big area of the future. But that does beg the question, what is quality? And how has the industrialization of our food changed quality over time? Martin White is a professor in the MRC Epidemiology Unit at the University of Cambridge, and his research is focused on understanding and changing food systems. It's difficult to know where to start because, of course, people started processing food in the 19th century, and um, I guess a key transition point um, was the Second World War. The post-war problem was one of rationing and insufficient food, um, and uh, so production had to be scaled up and... Uh, both in terms of agricultural production, but also in terms of processing of food and the whole logistics of getting it to the population, um, which is, if you think about it, a kind of massive task when you've got 65 million people in the population um, in the UK uh, alone. If you go back to the sort of pre-war and, and early post-war years, there were still deficiency diseases in this country. And we don't, you know, there has been some talk of resurgence of scurvy recently. I think you had something in the BMJ, but by and large, we don't have deficiency diseases anymore. So, you know, the variety and the the kind of supply of a, a full range of nutrients to everyone is is a kind of a, 
I guess one of the big drivers of that has been the advent of supermarkets um, in the late 50s, early 60s, and uh, how those have grown and become completely dominant in the, the retail um, food sector, um, such that they're now commanding uh, somewhere in excess of 75% of the, the, the food market, the grocery food market in the UK. From a consumer point of view, you see the supermarket, you go in, you see that there's a lot of food in there, and you know a big a big supermarket in the UK, the, the largest kinds of supermarkets, without mentioning any brand names, um, will carry about forty thousand lines in one shop. I mean, not all of it's food, but that's a lot of different mm. lines. You know, I'm just thinking going into my local supermarket. You go in and there's the sort of the fruit and vegetable section, which is maybe I don't know a couple of aisles, and then there's the the meat and fish section, a couple of aisles, and then there's this huge vast array of things that come in packets that are kind of beyond that. And I just wonder, um, you know, what's, what's the change that's gone in there and, and the, the sort of the growth in, in that processed food um, side of our diet? Yeah, so that's grown very significantly. And um, I mean, it's perhaps important to say that the fruit and veg section's grown and the, the meat and fish and everything has grown very significantly as well. So, um, you know, when my parents were children, all the fr- most of the fresh fruit, almost all of it, um, was sourced from the UK. Um, and, and that meant that the range of fresh produce was actually very limited. So now we have a you know, vastly expanded uh, range of products. So you, know, you can get a strawberry all year round from a range of different countries and all that sort of thing. But yeah, on the processed food side, um, that's expanded very dramatically. And it's not just, you know, that um, it's not just about getting things that, you know, we've always had access to and need like flour or I don't know, they're, they're kind of staple things like that and butter. But um, what, what's occurred is this incredible product innovation as well. So that, you know, you can, you can get, you know, multiple varieties of almost everything now. And maybe the, the obvious example is the ready meal. So now you can go and buy either in the freezer section or the fresh food section, something in a, a foil container or a plastic container that is a whole meal um, that's completely ready to eat. All you need to do is heat it up. Um, some of them you don't need to heat up, um, which is kind of an incredible product innovation. You know, there's mm. there's so much technology that goes into developing something like that. And people like it because it's convenient. The technology that Martin was talking about there has changed vastly over the last century. Industrialization of our food has made it cheaper and more plentiful than ever. But it's also fundamentally changed what we consume. If you look at the back of a packet in the supermarket, a lot of the things on there would be entirely unrecognisable to the average person of 50 years ago. Mathilde Touvier, who you heard in the introduction, is a senior researcher in nutritional epidemiology at INSERM in France. And her research is focusing on what has been defined as ultra-processed food. Ultra-processed foods are mass-produced, and their whole food ingredients are transformed with the addition of preservatives, hydrogenated oils, modified starches and protein isolates. They're created through these industrial processes like extrusion and moulding and reshaping. And they often contain flavouring agents, colours, emulsifiers, humectants to keep everything moist and artificial sweeteners. Mathilde recently published research in the BMJ, which used a large French cohort to look at the association between these foods and health, particularly cancer. 
the, the, the increasing in the degree of food processing comes with um, a higher um, level of innovation from the food industry, which is not always bad. Uh, I mean, uh, many innovations and many um, process, food processed uh, are um, may have very um, high um, qualities. For instance, they are uh, really um, safer regarding microbiological aspects. Uh, they are um, convenient to prepare. You, we have uh, all hectic lives, so uh, it's very appreciable to have uh, products that are cooked uh, rapidly and uh, conveniently. Um, they are uh, highly palatable also, so with a good taste. And so um, uh, all these uh, aspects uh, explain why the development of these foods uh, increased. And so they also, this kind of um, mode of production also allows to, to um, decrease the cost of production and so to make uh, these foods available for um, a large amount of people. So uh, they definitely have advantages. The question now is, um, do uh, all the processes, all the food additives used and so on, uh, are they all safe? And so we really need to investigate these aspects because they are seriously a social uh, positive impacts. Um, but for health, the question really remains. Mm. And, you know, what are those concerns about um, health? What, what do nutritionists worry about with that kind of increase um, in processed food? Um, several characteristics of ultra-processed food um, um, led us to conduct uh, studies on the, 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 the association between ultra-processed food and health impacts because ultra-processed food are characterized by um, in general, as an average, a lower nutritional quality. That means uh, higher salt content, sugary fatty acids, less vitamins, minerals, dietary fibers. Um, they are also characterized by the presence of food additives. So uh, in Europe, for instance, you have more than 300 um, uh, food additives authorized. So uh, most of them won't have any um, harmful health impact, and maybe some of them may have uh, also um, positive health impacts, such as antioxidants, for instance. But for some of them, um, experimental studies suggested uh, adverse health outcomes on uh, carcinogenic properties, uh, endocrine disruptor properties, or um, perturbation of the microbiota, for instance. So maybe some additives may be um, may have adverse health effects. Uh, in ultra-processed food, you also um, have potentially a contamination by um, products that are uh, formed during the processes, such as uh, acrylamide or acrolein, for instance. Um, and maybe also they can contain um, contaminants from uh, the packagings. For instance, um, plastic packagings that um, uh, surround these uh, ultra-processed foods may contain bisphenol A, for instance, for which, um, once again, endocrine uh, disruptor properties have been suggested. So for all these characteristics, um, this is why researchers uh, currently uh, are asking about the, the health impact of these ultra-processed foods. And they're also very calorie dense, and those calories are very available once they're eaten. Yes, of course, this is um, a part of the nutritional quality that I mentioned. They uh, always have a higher content in sugar, um, saturated fatty acids and energy, uh, which are uh, features that we should quite limit in our um, occidental diets. And so, yes, this may contribute to uh, either directly to uh, the increase in maybe cancer, cardiovascular diseases and, and or uh, through uh, an increase in um, weight gain and obesity risk. 
the food that Matilda was talking about there is what in the supermarket I'd often think of as junk or snack food. So it seems like it should be pretty easy to figure out what it is and study its effects. But it's not only what we eat that's important, but how we eat it. Industry has not only reformulated what we eat, it's also transforming our dietary patterns. Food on the go is a relatively new concept, but one that's quickly been established. Chances are that at least some of you are munching at your desk or walking down the street eating whilst listening to this. And the mayor of Florence in Italy is so disgusted by it that this week he's banned street eating in the centre of his town. But that kind of change in our eating patterns can exacerbate some of the difficulties we talked about in our first podcast when it comes to examining diet and health. Jean Adams is a senior university lecturer in dietary public health research at the University of Cambridge, where she works with Martin White. There's also been change over time in how we source our food and the patterns of eating throughout the day and things like that. And so there's big changes in uh, like out of home purchasing from cafes, restaurants, takeaways, that sort of thing. But also changes in a move away from that kind of very clear three meals plus maybe a couple of snacks at specific times of day to, I guess, just more flexibility. And like if as a population as a whole, we still see peaks, particularly at what we might define as lunchtime and dinner time, so the middle of the day and sometime towards the end of the working day. But that concept of breakfast seems to be much more diffuse for people. And perhaps just more consumption at other times of day as well. So people moving their consumption away from peaks towards some sort of continuous, maybe as you look at the population. Mm. We once did a project on snacking and it it took us a long, long time to work out the difference between a meal and a snack. Like how could we work out the definition? And I think that that's... What did you work out? Oh, it was something ridiculous. Like, uh, I can't... It was... I think what we did was we defined a meal as something that involves more than so many food groups and takes at least 30 minutes. And if there was a break of so many minutes and another eating occasion didn't have that many food groups, then it was a snack or something. It was like incredibly complicated of what might you, th- what is a snack? And so it's lots of-, of people will say, well, a snack is obviously a bag of crisps, right? But an apple's also a snack if you, if you have it in a snacking context. So. But but also in that context, if you look at, so that, I think that study was using food diaries, if I yeah. remember rightly. Yeah. So if you do look at people's food diaries, if you imagine you wrote down everything you ate for twenty four hours or a week or whatever, and we would, we could go through it as researchers and and, and look at it, and um, you know it is it is really you know some some people may have very very structured diets in the sort of three meals a day fashion. That's easy. But if people are eating lots of different things at different times a day, just when they feel hungry, then it becomes very difficult to define a meal and a snack. Mm. And, and also some people may eat what you might consider a meal as a snack. Um, so then, you know, the science of it becomes just incredibly difficult the, yeah, yeah. from a definitional point of view. It's a lot easier to go into something like a supermarket and say, right, those are all snacks. Because, <laughs> you know, uh, snack foods, some, right? sort of, some sort of cereal bar is, is not a meal. <laughs> but, you know, that, even then there's, a, there's an element of judgment about it. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that's difficult to tease apart is to what extent 
society's moved in this direction of its own accord, you know, because people become more busy and so on. And to what extent the food industry has shaped people's habits by product innovation and so on. So, you know, the more snack foods that have appeared, and if you think about it during your lifetime, you know, there'll be lots of foods now that just didn't exist, you know, when you were a teenager, for example. Just loads of things keep appearing. And I think that the food companies are constantly doing market research to understand people's preferences and their, you know, what they will spend money on, essentially. Mm. And if they can see a, an opportunity to innovate in a particular area, um, then they will. And they'll use marketing techniques to tap into that as well. So if they, you know, food on the go is a kind of a, you know, a sort of expression that you might expect to see in marketing. And uh, there are so many on-the-go products now, things things that are specifically developed so that you can just buy it at a checkout, stuff it in your pocket, eat it on the bus or the train or whatever, you know. So going back to the example of the, the cereal bar, that's breakfast. Mm. If you're like me, you're probably aware that snacks and junk foods, things that we would consider low quality, however delicious, are not particularly good for you. As Jean explained, it's difficult to measure how much of someone's diet they make up and hence work out their effect. Someone whose research has started to shed light on that is Nicola Guess, lecturer in nutritional sciences and diabetes at King's College London. Nicola works with people who have diabetes and has focused on patients who use a low-carb diet to help manage their condition. In the first podcast, we explored the idea of isochloric substitution. That is, if you cut something out of your diet, in this case carbs, you need to replace those calories with something else. And that replacement is just as important as what you've removed. Lots of people, my my colleagues in the dietetic field, some of my medical colleagues, were concerned about people following low-carbohydrate diets um, because they thought they're going to be restrictive. You're not going to get enough nutrients. Um, And what we should be doing in research is testing that hypothesis and saying, well, is that true? Um, So what I sought out to do was do a cross-sectional study in a large population data set and say, okay, let's look at the people who have a low-carbohydrate diet, so less than 26% of their energy from carbs, look at people with a normal-carbohydrate diet. And my research question was, what are they eating? Are they getting enough nutrients, vitamins, minerals, etc.? And what did you find? Um, so basically I found that low-carbohydrate diets and high-carbohydrate diets can both be or both have good and bad aspects to them. As one would expect. Yeah. As one would expect, sure. Um, so I found the low-carbohydrate diet, unsurprisingly, had a greater amount of meat, uh, red meats, processed meats, um, fewer fruits and vegetables, but they also had um, substantially lower kind of high sugar, high fat foods. So I created this category, which was high sugar, high fat foods and snacks, like donuts, ice cream, cakes, biscuits, you know, that kind of thing. And people on a low carbohydrate diet had, on average, one serving, if not less per day. So it was a mean, actually, of a median of zero. But in the high carbohydrate group, the variety people were having was six. So that's huge. If we think about the impact of those those foods on our health and well-being, the fact that there's something about a low-carbohydrate diet, maybe people just go, all carbs are bad, I'm not eating them, and boom, they just get rid of all of this really bad stuff, the high-sugar, high-fat stuff. High-sugar, high-fat. What 
for the purposes of this podcast, we would call low-quality food. But as we've said, the substitution is important. So what is it that this group is eating instead? Were they substituting low-quality food for high-quality food? So let me go back to what the high-carb diet were doing in my study. The high-carb group did have more fibre. Um, it's important to note, even the high-carbohydrate group didn't meet the recommendations for fibre. So yes, they had statistically more, but it wasn't like they had this amazingly rich uh, diet in whole grains. Um, and the high-carb diet tended to have more things like nuts and seeds. But going back to the quality question, and actually my conclusion was this, you can have a high-quality diet, whether it's low-carb or high-carb, but it's about choosing the right foods. And what both groups... Um, did very poorly in the nutritional sense is the intake of things like salmon, nuts and seeds, dairy and fruit and veg was pretty low across the whole board. Um, so you could have a low carbohydrate diet, have nut seeds, avocado, salmon, dairy, high fat dairy if you want to, and some low sugar fruits and veggies. Great. You can have a high carbohydrate carbohydrate diet with those same things and so my overall message was we need to do better no matter what diet you're eating at selecting those foods that we know are rich in nutrients rich in fiber proteins and healthy fats mm. um wondered if you had any um more information about yeah the, the sort of socioeconomic variation that you saw in in those kind of substitutions and what people decided to to eat instead of, of carbs? Yes, yeah, so I did. So actually, that's a really important point. Um, I work with uh, many uh, very talented doctors who are using low carb in their practices, um, and they follow it themselves. And their diets are fantastic. But when I look at the, the plates they're posting on Instagram, I'm adding up the cost of it myself. And I'm thinking that plate's £10. Because it's, it's just this amazing, delicious smoked salmon, avocado, etc, etc. And if you've got a family of four, I mean, that's an enormous cost. So a big question I had when I did the, anal the analyses that I did was, does socioeconomic status come into it? So here it's important to mention, when I was doing the low carbohydrate analysis, it was in the UK Biobank data set. Um, and that data set actually is predominantly um, a Caucasian population. It's about 97% Caucasian. Um, it is of high socioeconomic status and the people within it are generally healthier than the general population. So it's not representative by any means. But I still did find some effect of socioeconomic status, um, particularly with fruits and vegetables. <clears throat> Excuse me. So although I did find that the low carbohydrate group tended to have fewer fruits and vegetables, actually a lot of what was driving some of that was socioeconomic status. So when I mentioned that I was surprised that the fruit and veg intake wasn't as low on the low carb diet, it was because a lot of those people were, I think, had a high socioeconomic status and they were choosing those foods. Mm. If I then looked at low carb and low socioeconomic status, so people from more deprived areas who were following low carb, they definitely tended to follow the pattern that I thought. So a lot more processed meats and a lot more a lot less uh, fruit and veg. Um, so that definitely plays a role. Um, a previous study I did was asking the same question, but it looked at reduced carb. 
So it wasn't a, t- a low carbohydrate, which is under 26% of calories. It was under 40%. That was in the National Diet and Nutrition Survey, which is very representative. And I found the same thing there. And actually in that cohort, socioeconomic status was driving all of the difference in fruit and vegetable intake. So there, quality is important. But is it possible for us all to have high quality food? That's going to be the focus of our next food podcast. How much agency do people have when it comes to choosing a good diet? Not just money, but time, education, availability in the area, things which might be socioeconomically mediated. We've covered a bit about the science of quality, but I want to get a little bit more philosophical about it. Quality is something which seems nice, benign even, and fundamentally maybe just right? But when we talk about it, are we always sticking to the scientific term? Or are we wandering into grounds which seem a little bit more, maybe for want of a better word, moral? The clean eating movement seems to be the most extreme version of wanting to eat high-quality food. And if you look at social media, blogs, videos, whatever else, Clean Eating's proponents stick to it and talk about it with an almost religious fervour. Alan Levinovitz is an assistant professor at James Madison University and author of The Gluten Lie and Other Myths About What We Eat and an upcoming book on what we think of as natural foods. Now, it's not often I end up talking to a professor of religious studies. Um, and we're doing this, obviously, within the context of, of nutrition. So I just wonder, what was it that made you start to think about um, about food? And, and how did you, you get there uh, from studying religion? Well, in the context of my own studies, which is, you know, I, I specialize in, in classical Chinese thought, it's hard not to notice the importance of diet. So if you take early proto-Taoist monks, they would have all kinds of food prohibitions. They would say that if you didn't eat the five grains which were eaten by the masses, you could avoid death and illness and fly and teleport. And I, you know, I started thinking to myself, well, just because people talk about dietary restrictions today in the language of science doesn't mean that that they might not be participating in the same kinds of belief systems and meaning making that we traditionally associate with religion. And I started to investigate more and, and all of a sudden it became perfectly, you know, so obvious you start to see it everywhere, right? People refer to their foods in terms of guilty pleasures, right? That language of guilt or it's a sinful treat. Um, and, and when I saw that, I, I felt it might be really helpful for people to start thinking about dietary practices with this theoretical framework that is native to the discipline of a religious studies scholar. We recently had this conference and a lot of the the discussion there was around quality of food. Um, you know, how important it was to, to eat high quality food. Um, and that seems to sort of feed directly into uh, some of the things that you've been studying, especially when it comes to um, what you're talking there about the monks. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that, that doesn't get discussed, I think, quite enough is the way in which words like quality, they bridge the gap between the sort of qualitative 
areas of scientific research that we can do. You know, how many calories are in this? What's the nutritional composition? I'm sorry, the quantitative stuff. And the qualitative side of food, which is, you know, is it good? Is it good for you psychologically and physically? Is it good for the environment? Um, how does it make you feel? How does it connect to your culture? And so when people talk about food being good, and there's another word, right, that bridges um, sort of scientific standards of health and and more philosophical understandings of what goodness is, you start to realize that there can't be a discussion of what a good diet is or what quality food is without acknowledging the way in which existential questions about the world and about oneself are bound up with how we decide what to eat. Mm, and I think you can definitely see that when you, you look at sort of patterns, what people think of maybe as, I don't know, natural food. It comes from nature, it's vegetables, it's meat that's, that isn't processed. You know, you can almost see the sort of the lineage of it. I, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the example you gave of, of natural and then the way it ties to tradition, I think, is really fascinating because this word, of course, is very difficult to define and that's and that's totally fine. But the way in which people often end up defining natural is something that comes from the past, something that has been around for a long time. And of course, in the in the area of religious studies, it's in, in the study of myth, the idea that things in the past were better and then we fell from that past is common in virtually every single cultural tradition. It is cross-cultural. It is trans-historical. There is idea, this idea that things were good, things were perfect at one point in time and suffering is caused by a violation of laws that had been originally laid down. And of course... If you if you step away from religion, if you're trying to make this sound scientific, well, you can't have those laws being given by a god and they can't be magical laws. So you use the word natural or nature, right? What it, well, it's, it's what nature wanted us to do. And, and in that way, what you get is the kind of religiosity that attended old food laws, but couched in the language of science, which is the authoritative language of our day. Mm. Um, so from your point of view, as someone who kind of studies um, thought and, and religion, how do you think uh, talking about things in that way shapes the way we, we view things? How, what do you think is the sort of practical effect of it? Well, in f what I would want to do is actually reverse that. And I would say that the way in which we view things, in other words, the way in which we are constituted as human beings, makes it impossible for us not to talk about food in those ways. So I have I've increasingly become convinced that in order to make our way in the world as human beings, we need a kind of shorthand to make sense of things, to make meaning for ourselves. And that shorthand comes in all sorts of forms. The idea, for example, that natural is better than what is artificial. Or in, in reverse, the idea that progress is good and that everything in the past was bad. And so we take these kinds of shorthands, uh, myths, if you will, and we use them to make sense of the world and also to you know figure out what it is that we want to eat. And so I believe that no matter how hard science strives to kind of separate itself from myth or metaphor or the kind of existential meaning making that is so important to people, we'll never be able to because that's not what humans are. Humans are a combination 
of the the sort of quantitative side that science is so good at observing, but we're not just machines, right? We're machines that make meaning for themselves. And so I don't think we'll ever really get away from the dual understanding of food as something existential so for, and moral. For someone and also who is medical and is thinking and about, you know, someone's diet from a medical point of view that, you know, maybe they want to, to help them... Um, be able to control their diabetes better or, or whatever it is. You know, what do you think the fact that that there is this other layer of thinking sort of layered over food means um, for that kind of conversation that, to, that needs to happen? Well, for one, I think people really need to, you know, especially, you know, say physicians, um, medical practitioners, they they need to try to understand the context of their patient's life. So is this a patient who feels betrayed by nutritional authorities? Are they someone who wanted to eat butter for a long time and now feels like you can eat butter or was on a low fat diet? Uh, you know, so is this someone who who is upset with nutritional authority? Uh, is this someone for whom food is very important? You know, is this a person who enjoys food in their daily lives? And then also, how does this person understand themselves as human beings and in the larger context of of the world? How do they make meaning for themselves? And I'll give an example of this that isn't quite about diabetes, but it helps underscore the points that I'm making, which is that when women are told to breastfeed, often the rhetoric is that, well, it's natural. You know, this is what's natural for your child. Uh, nature has made this amazing food for your child. And of course, if that is how you suggest to people, if that's how you try to persuade people to breastfeed, that idea that natural food is good food isn't simply going to stay in the realm of breastfeeding. It's going to bleed over into all kinds of contexts. And that same person is going to think to themselves, well, surely if what's natural is good for my baby, then what's natural is also good for me. And so I think medical practitioners have a dual responsibility, which is one, to figure out where their patient is coming from and try to address their patient on those terms, and also to think about the way in which the terms that they use are going to create certain worlds of meaning for their patients, that, that telling someone to breastfeed because it's natural actually has wide-reaching implications for how that person will understand what is good in their own life. Alan Levinovitz and many of our other interviewees from this episode will appear in later ones too, talking more about how we think about food, what makes diets work, and why thinking about food purely nutritionally is just going the wrong way. Subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss out on those. For more background reading, have a look at our Food for Thought collection. I'll link to the page in the podcast text. There you'll find the articles I mentioned at the beginning about what the research on nutrition agrees on and where we still need to investigate. It's all open access and really fascinating, so I'd recommend reading it. That's all for this podcast. We'll be back next week talking about the future of the NHS. We're in an era where communicable disease isn't the main driver of care in the UK. Instead, it's chronic disease mediated by lifestyle factors. So what are the societal interventions that research tells us would most reduce the healthcare burden in the UK? Find out next week. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. 
Thanks for listening.